and turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 2, verses, excuse me, 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We begin today uh, looking at the day of Pentecost. We will look at the coming of the Spirit today. And the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, and this great harvest of 3,000 souls that happened that day. What an amazing day that was. Well, listen attentively, for this is the word of our God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. So, Father, we turn to your word as those who are desperate for leading, for growth, for strengthening, for change. We pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand what's going on here. We pray for unction and anointing for the hearer and preacher alike. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Do you remember taking algebra? It was a terrible thing, wasn't it? Or perhaps you're taking algebra now. You know, it was always hard when the teacher would introduce a new concept. I would always get really stressed when we started talking about something new because you just mastered the last thing. You couldn't rest on your laurels anymore. Eventually, it would all come together. One of the most encouraging things that any teachers ever told me came from my algebra teacher. He said, Parker, everybody gets this. You will too. But it was stressful in those days when you were first learning it. It looked like Greek. We all began to wonder out loud. We would murmur, why in the world do we need to learn algebra? We're never going to use this. I mean, who ever actually uses algebra? The teacher would get wind of it and berate us again. Why algebra was crucial to life. Turns out that Mr. Seagull was actually kind of right. Algebra is used in everything from your smartphones, and we certainly couldn't live without those, to building design from graphic software to the machine that checks you out at Walmart, from the stock market and economics to managing the great traffic that is in Bruton. Why is algebra important? Well, without algebra, we wouldn't have the modern world. It wouldn't be all that modern. That's why algebra is important. Why is Pentecost important? 
Have you ever thought about that? It's really exciting to read about. It was a pretty exciting day. 3,000 people became believers. But is there an ongoing significance to it other than just a fun historical fact? Why is it important now? Well, without Pentecost, the Christian life wouldn't exist. There would be no Christian life. We wouldn't be Christians. Pentecost, pretty important. And this morning we're going to talk about why. But first we need to get the facts straight. What happened? Well, I mean, we might summarize the day of Pentecost as the day when the Holy Spirit came in power to every believer. Holy, uh, Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit came in power to every believer. But you know, the word Pentecost, when we think of the word Pentecost, that's what we think about. But the word Pentecost would have been known by Jews of this day. They were there actually in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Certainly not the way that we would. Pentecost uh, is from a Greek word, penti, which means 50. And it was 50 days after the Passover, and it marked the gathering of God's people to celebrate what was called the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. It was a harvest festival. After Passover, they would have gone home, and before uh, this feast, they would have harvested their crops, and they would have come to Jerusalem to bring their first fruits to God, to donate, to sacrifice to Him by giving them to the priests, and a memorial portion would be given to the Lord. It was a time of rejoicing and worship as they celebrated and gave thanks to God. It was a joyous affair. It would have been a pretty big, fun party with a lot of good food and hanging out with friends you hadn't seen in a while. Time of worship to the Lord. So that's why they're there. That's why there are so many people in Jerusalem at this point. Isn't it fun how God waited till this day where people had come from all over to do this so they might hear and then take the gospel back to their own lands? There certainly is here also a connection to the harvest. So we think about the harvest of souls. It'll happen as we look at next week. 3,000 people become Christians in one day. Certainly something special is going on there. Well, the 12 apostles gathered together in one place like Jesus told them to. He said, hey, stick around here. Wait for the coming of the Spirit. And so they are uh, in one place, perhaps the upper room that we saw them in last week. We don't know. We're not told. They're there with the company of about 120 other believers who are in Jerusalem. And they were waiting for the day in which they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them, wait for this. It will happen. They aren't real sure what it's going to look like. They're not real sure what's going to happen. But they know it will happen soon. But put yourself in their shoes. They are faithfully waiting, faithfully praying for it, for the Holy Spirit to come. But they don't know what it's going to be like. Have you ever had one of those times where you're excited about something coming, but you're not entirely sure what it's going to be like? There's a, there's a sense of kind of anxious um, happiness. Something's good's coming, and you're not real sure what it's going to be like. That's kind of what they were waiting for, the first pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all believers. And so they're gathered together, and then it happens. Right? They've been waiting for it, but the text says suddenly, suddenly it happened. And how do they know it happened? Well, God didn't leave any ambiguity, uh, no ambiguity at all. In fact, we see three supernatural elements that occur to let everybody know that they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's look at those. The the first one we read of in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
Now, now look carefully at that verse. It does not say that a wind went through the house. It says there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. You can feel Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, searching for words to describe what has happened. You think about the guys later sitting down with Luke as he's gathering material to write the book of Acts. And and they're trying to figure out, how how do I explain this sound we heard? How How do you put into words what we experienced? But it certainly fits, this idea of a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Because the word for spirit and wind is the same word in both Greek and Hebrew. Did you know that? That's a fun play on words here. In fact, over in John 3.8, we read this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, we're used to hearing loud sounds, aren't we? I woke up this morning briefly about 515 and do you know what I heard? I heard the train, right? Through the, you know, the winter, the leaves are gone. And so you can hear the sound better. And I heard the train in my bedroom. I'm used to hearing that. So oh, that's the train. You roll back over. Or to hear the whistle at T.R. Miller. That's how you know it's lunchtime and when to go back. Or the sound of airplanes. But you know, it was different in that day. You didn't have all those kind of loud sounds besides livestock around you. And we'll find in a minute that this loud sound, the sound like a mighty rushing wind, wasn't just confined to the house. All Jerusalem heard it. In fact, it's the thing that brought people together. It was like tolling of the bell, which used to tell people that was, by the way, the call to worship. Now we read Scripture. It used to be the bell. That was the call to worship. It's like a call to worship. And they'll come running But then something else happens. The second of three supernatural elements here, verse 3 tells us, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So something like tongues of fire appeared before their eyes in the room and and then it rested on top of their heads. Now, I don't know about you, but before reading and studying for this sermon, I always thought divided tongues meant they had two tongues up here. They were divided, one on one side, one on the other. Uh, That's actually not what it means here. The word divided does not mean something split like the Eastern and Western Division of the SEC, right? Instead, it refers to something being distributed, like pirates might divide the spoil. And so the Spirit comes, and the Spirit in this form of fire, which does not burn them, isn't that kind of wild and crazy, is divided equally amongst, get this, not just the apostles, but also the regular believers. Isn't that cool? It's not just the religious elite. It's not just the leaders who get the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is all the believers. You would have looked at me and I would have looked at you and said, uh, <clears throat> there's something, something up here. Right? But why fire? We talked about why wind, but why fire? Have you ever thought about that? Well, fire in the Old Testament often indicated the presence of God. Think about all the times you hear of fire in the Old Testament. A lot of times it's connected with the presence of God. Genesis 15 with the flaming torch, the flaming fire pot, and the covenant that is made with Abraham. Or when you get to the call of Moses, do you remember? Out of the burning bush that was not consumed, the fire. And then the presence of God was made manifest amongst 
God's people in the Exodus as he led them out by a pillar of fire. And so here, very intentionally, God uses this symbolism of fire to make it known to them and to us that God the Holy Spirit is upon them. Fire reminds us of God's power and holiness and glory. It also points us to the judgment of God and the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. You think about a needle. How do you purify? How do you sterilize a needle? You run it through fire. But John the Baptist told us this day was coming. And you know, I would imagine a lot of folks really wondered what it meant that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. I mean, what? I don't know that I want to be baptized with fire. Does that mean I'm going to go through the fire? But over in Luke 13, excuse me, 3 verse 16, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's what just happened. They've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and the manifestation, the outer manifestation is fire. I've always wondered how long the fire stuck around. Have you? I mean, did they go to bed at night and not be able to sleep because it was so bright? I mean, how long did it stick around? We're not told those answers. But there's a third supernatural element, and it's found in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This third thing, the third supernatural element is they began to speak in tongues, other tongues. What what does this mean? Well, it's not um, referring to unintelligible gibberish. Rather, to actual languages that they did not naturally know from growing up or learning. It would be like if all of a sudden I started speaking Chinese. An incredibly difficult language and one I've never studied before. And I spoke it fluently to the point where I could use the actual um, accent from a particular region. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the fire upon their heads. And then third, they began speaking in other languages. Now how amazing must it have been to have heard that? It didn't take any effort. It came because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This word filling means to fill over abundantly. You know, it's not like when you're low on milk and you're trying to give just enough to everybody where you just put a little bit in and even it out. Rather, this is the overflowing cup of Psalm 23. In fact, it's used elsewhere, translated as flood. The Holy Spirit came flooding upon them. Well, you can hide a lot of things, right? But you can't hide this, especially with such a great sound from heaven. And so now Luke zooms the camera lens out a little, and we find that at this point there are a lot of people in Jerusalem from all over the known world. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each was hearing them speak in his own tongue. Devoutly religious Jews lived all over the Roman Empire. They had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. And they would have had local synagogues or like churches where they would gather together on the Sabbath to worship. But a lot of folks would come to Jerusalem for educational and religious purposes. But a lot of folks, a lot of Jews would actually move back to Jerusalem towards the end of their lives because they wanted to die in Jerusalem near the temple. Well, these people spoke a lot of languages. What what would happen if you or I, if we moved to France? 
Um, well, we would need to learn the language. Our children would pick it up pretty quickly. Uh, and certainly they would grow up speaking it, and their children would grow up speaking it even more naturally. But we would have to know French, but we'd also know English. Well, that's what happened to all these devout Jews who lived throughout the Roman Empire. They weren't bilingual, though. They were often trilingual. They would know three languages. First, they would know Aramaic, which was the Hebrew dialect of the day, and that was because all the religious services, everything in Judaism was conducted in Aramaic. Second, though, they would have known Greek. Greek was the common language of the day. It was the trade language. But the third language they would have known is what missiologists, those who study missions, they would have known as their heart language, the language they grew up speaking in the home, the local language that they grew up in of their native land. And so as these folks were responding to this great sound and they came close and and all these people, not just the apostles, by the way, because 15 regions are mentioned here and there are only 12 apostles. All of these believers, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, were speaking in languages, the heart language of their native lands. And their response is they're bewildered. They're left speechless. And it's all happening at the same time. What were they talking about? Verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So often we like to focus on the person who has the gift, right? Look at someone who's really good and exalt them. But what's the focus of this passage? It is not on these people speaking these languages. Rather, it is on God. They don't want the recognition, these Christians. They're pointing people to God. They're speaking of Christ and His resurrection and ascension. You know, one important application of, of all sorts of, you know, we, in the Christian world there's disagreement on the continuing gifts, the ecstatic, special, flashy gifts of the Spirit. But one litmus test we can always use is whether it glorifies God or the person. If it glorifies the person, it's not from God. That was not their concern here. It was not of them. Their concern was on the mighty acts of God. So how do the people respond? What were their initial thoughts? How would you have responded? Well, Luke is going to use four different adjectives to try to describe their reaction. Bewildered, amazed, astonished, perplexed. And then he's going to use amazed again. Why, why is this? Well, as amazing it is they're speaking in different tongues, even more amazing is the fact that they're from Galilee. We don't know how they would have known this, but they were known as Galileans. Now, you know, as, as Alabamians, we're always thankful for Mississippi, right? Because if it weren't for Mississippi, we'd be on the last on every list. Well, that's kind of how Galilee was. Galilee was an uneducated backwards town or area. And here these people were, uneducated men and women, speaking in foreign tongues in to 15 different regions. Well, some people respond as they're just amazed trying to figure it out. And others, we find in verse 13, thought they were just drunk. Right? Highly intoxicating sweet wine. Well, those are the facts, but why is Pentecost important? Why is Pentecost important? Perhaps you can figure a few things out from the things we talked about, but let's, let's go through that a little more. 
For one, we might say that it is a day in which everything changed for God's people. It is a day in which everything changed for God's people. There have been a lot of days like that. You think about the importance of days like uh, the Christ's birth, the triumphal entry, certainly His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, right? Each one of these things is crucial to who we are as believers, to our salvation. Without Without any one of them, we would not be Christians. The same is true of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, people had a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than we do today as Christians. The Holy Spirit is God. There's one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is introduced to us in the very opening verses of Genesis. He is active in the Old Testament. But there's a shift. Something new happens at Pentecost. For then... At Pentecost, every believer receives the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. In the Old Testament, often it was just the the prophets, the priests, and the kings, those who had been selected for important things, who received the Holy Spirit. And and He could be removed, as we see with the issue of Saul. right? But there was coming a day when all that would change. When everyday believers, like you and me, would have something that our Old Testament saints could only have dreamt of. We're told all throughout the Old Testament this day was coming. But the clearest text is in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Speaking of a future day, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And at Pentecost, this happened. The believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit. This now for us happens at conversion. When we are converted, when we become Christians, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things that water baptism points us to. The inward reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means that God the Holy Spirit comes and He lives inside of us to dwell within us. You know, in the Old Testament, we might say that God's special dwelling place was the temple. Where is it now? I mean, people would travel thousands of miles to come to the temple. Where is God's special dwelling place now? My friends, my brothers and sisters, it is inside you. Don't you remember that the the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom when Christ was crucified? We now have special access that, that Old Testament saints would just dreamt of, yearning for the day of fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We might say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the moment in which we are made new, born again, made to be Christians as we respond in faith and repentance. Well, it's not like the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and then just sits quietly. First of all, He is a He and not an It. It is He, the Holy Spirit. Just like we talk about Jesus as He, the Holy Spirit, He. He's busy in our lives. And what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? 
What is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? It is to apply to us those things which Christ has achieved for us on the cross. How how does what Christ did get to us? It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son to redeem us and to atone for our sins. The Father and the Son then sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of His people to apply to us those things which Christ did for us. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ. He is the one who teaches us from the Word, grows us in God's grace, strengthens our faith, convicts us of sin, testifies to us that we belong to God, calls us into action, restrains our sinful desires, transforms our hearts and minds, reminds us of the words of Christ, equips the church for ministry, grants to us spiritual gifts, and grows us in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we think about what the Christian life is, there is no Christian life apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You can fake a lot of things in life, but you cannot fake the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, we could do an entire series on the Holy Spirit, but you can't do it in one sermon. Although I was tempted to try. But there's one more important element at play here. So we think about what it means for the Christian life. It's vital, right? He is vital. But when we think about ministry and missions, we couldn't do any missions, any ministry, apart from the Holy Spirit. Why is that? I think I, think I heard this from a, one of our fellow preachers. You go out to the cemetery and try to argue those people back to life. It doesn't work, does it? And Ephesians 2 tells us that that we are spiritually dead. That apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And and dead people want nothing to do with God. And it takes the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to make us new. To make us born again. Born from above. See, Jesus gave the marching orders to the church over in Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Note that Jesus' command that you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth was predicated upon, was based upon, was contingent upon. First, they would have the Holy Spirit. And this is what we'll see next week. That when the Holy Spirit comes, I mean, things just start happening. 3,000 people of devout Jews, many of whom may have been part of the crowds that cried out, crucify Him, right? who helped kill the author of life. How do you change someone's heart from killing Christ to calling upon His name for forgiveness? Well, it's got to take the Holy Spirit. When I was in seminary, I worked at a Baptist church uh, running their gym. And uh, one day my boss called me and said, hey, uh, in about an hour, I need you to keep the scoreboard and keep the stats for the Baptist men's church basketball game. Now, I'd seen these men practice. And you didn't want to mess up anything that had to do with their basketball game. Now, I knew how to run a scoreboard, but I'd never kept stats before. And, and these men didn't just keep the bare number of stats. I mean, they had one of those long log books with, you know, with all the stats. Field goals, free throws, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, turnovers, and the like. And I was saying, we're in trouble. Well, I didn't know any of that stuff. Thankfully, she got someone else to do it. But you know, if I'd had enough time, it was just a matter of knowledge. I could have done it. 
When it comes to ministry without the Holy Spirit, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of inability. It would be like telling a paraplegic to go climb Mount Everest. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no ministry. There is no ministry. The Holy Spirit is the one who converts us and makes us alive. And when we share the gospel with people, we have freedom that comes from that, don't we? Because ultimately it is the Holy Spirit working with, through, and even against our efforts to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's a great thing to pray that the Holy Spirit would move in someone's heart to quicken them, to make them alive. Well, as we end, let me say this, that, there, that because of this, because of the, redeem, the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it means there is hope for anyone and everyone. You know, there really are no degrees of deadness. People who are spiritually dead are spiritually dead. There are no degrees of deadness. And the Holy Spirit has the power to make the dead spiritually dead, alive. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of guilt and shame you carry. Christ has paid for the guilt and shame of His people. It's been dealt with. May the Holy Spirit work in your heart. As He shows you your sin, may He show you the loveliness of Christ. May the Spirit move powerfully in our midst. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for sending the Holy Spirit, for uniting us to Christ, for applying to us those things which Christ did for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit You would do a great work in our midst. For those who don't know You, that today would be the day of their salvation. For those who are running, that this might be the day of their turning. And Father, that we might know you better and love you more. We are dependent upon you. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.